Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, quick reminder, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show are available free of charge, more than 500 episodes and counting. There is also an official Other People app. That, too, is free. It's all free. So if you like the show and you would like to show your support, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. All right? Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just hey everybody, one how's it going? Welcome to <laughs> right. the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I have Lynn Tillman on the program today. Very excited about that. She has a new novel out called Men and apparitions it's available from soft skull press this is her first novel in more than a decade uh she published american genius a comedy in 2006 she's often referred to as a cult figure not that she's like a cult leader but she you know she's got like a cult classics rabid fans a writer's writer you know there's all these different ways that people try to characterize uh her particular readership and their enthusiasm for her work and uh, it's justified. She's one of our finest uh, and most idiosyncratic and singular voices. And I was just thrilled to get a chance to meet her. She was just here a couple of days ago and was absolutely delightful. So that conversation is coming up in just a second. Before we get there, I do uh, have some mail. I've been getting mail, a steady stream. I feel uh, obliged to read you some. This is from Steve. A listener named Steve says, Hello, Brad. I know that you sometimes take questions, so I have one for you. How do you combat the urge to reconcile your quote-unquote self with yourself? In my personal experience, I have an, an almost compulsive need to explain myself to myself. Many of my interests and behaviors seem incongruent, and the image that I see myself as often seems contradictory. I have a hard time wrapping my head around who I am. Is this something that you have experienced too? Am I just relying too much on the image that society has conditioned me to believe I should live up to, i.e. being quirk-free? Maybe none of this makes sense. I don't know, but I figured I'd throw this question out to you. Sincerely, Steve. 
Thanks for writing, Steve. You know, uh, I feel like the exploration of self, of what a self actually is, is a, a very worthy exercise. And I feel like it gets to the center of what uh, human existence is all about and what the mystery of life is all about. And it's something that is uh, so elemental that I think we often overlook it, but it's worth pondering as often as possible, daily. I mean, I feel like the, I feel like the, you know, life and being alive and being a human being on this planet, in this universe, it's, it's much stranger and more mysterious than we give it credit for. It's very easy to overlook. It's very easy to get lost in the minutia of existence, in our thoughts and in our worries and in our jobs and our relationships and in the rhythms of life. And, you know, then you're in an Uber and you're in a taxi and you're in your apartment and you're watching television and you're on your phone and all this stuff. And you forget, like, what, what the hell is this? What am I? It's fucking weird. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a complex topic. You got all sorts of ways of, uh, of thinking about it. I feel like there's the duality issue where you start to refer to yourself, you know, as a, as an other, as a separate thing. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm arguing with myself. I'm thinking about myself. I can't live with myself. I'm angry at myself. Well, who's the I and who's the self? So you've split yourself into two. And then there's the, uh, the entire thing about, uh, you know, there's no separate self. There's no such thing as a separate self. Nothing can be by itself alone. Everything is a, is a, is an amalgam and a continuation. Your combination of phenomena and those phenomena are combinations of other phenomena and, and on and on. Everything's impermanent. Everything is ever changing the, uh, like, you know, atomic and subatomic levels. So they're, you know, fixed identities are illusory, all that kind of stuff. but it's worth thinking about. It's fundamentally odd. And if you feel confused or you feel uh, sort of an instinctive, like oddness about it, I feel like that's accurate. That's uh, that's correct. Like birds. I just look around at nature. Like I was look, I was looking at a bird the other day. I think it was a seagull. I was watching the seagull fly around and I was, I was thinking to myself, like, that's just unbelievable that these things are flying around. I never notice them. Birds everywhere. Winged creatures soaring all around me. I have no idea. And I wouldn't put too much faith, Steve, in... Uh, in the way that society conditions us to be quirk free or whatever, you know, however you put it, I, I wouldn't worry about that. Embrace your quirks. We need more quirks, frankly. I'm not so sure that American society in particular is all that healthy, especially right now. I wouldn't use it as a benchmark. I would, I would just look at birds. <laughs> I think that's going to be my message here today. I think that, uh, when you're feeling confused about who you are, who you're supposed to be, return to nature, 
Notice your surroundings. Understand that everything is impermanent. Understand that you are a combination of phenomena. Look to the sky. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Lynn Tillman. Her new novel, Men and Apparitions, is out there now from Soft Skull Press. It is a great thrill and an honor to have her here on the podcast and to get a chance to meet her. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Lynn Tillman. It does get thrown at me a lot. And I tend to think that if something appears to be an experiment right off the bat, then it really isn't an experiment. I don't write, I guess, what's called traditional novels. I'm not... Maybe I'm not capable of doing that. I, I, it's just not where my interest lies. I start out with ideas that I'm interested in delving into. Questions? Questions. For instance, this book, this new novel, which took me many years to figure out, Men and Apparitions. I started with the idea, how would you narrate living in a glut of images? How would you tell that story? Because it's something that is said all the time. And for 40 years, we're all living in a glut of images. And of course, now that glut has become a hyper glut or a uber glut or something with the internet and cell phone images and all of this. And so that I gave myself a very hard job from my point of view. But I don't like to write the same book twice. A friend of mine, Stephen Prina, said to me, your books are like projects. And in a way, the novels, definitely, I guess, I I see his point because I want to understand some questions or at least interrogate, interrogate something about the culture and society. And I, I don't just start writing. I'm thinking for a long time, can this thing hold up? And, and what about contemporary masculinity? Is that like, there's no, that's another question you're exploring? Well, yes. And, uh, I, some years ago, I was realizing that a lot of my younger male friends 
um, were speaking so differently about their relationships, what they wanted from women, and I realized that all of this was happening under the sign of feminism, and that their mothers had been feminists or sisters, or in in college, whether it was in the 90s, they were taking women's studies courses, and they were changing along with women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their expectations were different. So the other so so I made him Ezekiel who's my protagonist I made Zeke into uh, an ethnographer not only of family images family photographs but of his own kind in other words he was studying uh, doing an ethnography of his group his his age group and young men born uh, under the sign of feminism. He's 30. He's 38, I think. 38, yeah. Right. So I I actually did do a case study. I, I did send emails to 30 guys I know oh. and asked uh, some very general questions. Uh, it was obviously a very, very, very small set of men. Uh, they were 25 to, say, 45, something like that. And I asked, how are you different from your father? Uh, What do you expect from women? What do you think women expect from you? Maybe one other, very, in a way, general yet specific. The answers were spectacularly fascinating. Were there any consistencies? Oh, yes. Yeah. And and that's why I made a, a book out of them at the... At the, I don't really like to tell too much about this novel, but there is a book within the book, which is part of the novel, and the book is called Men in Quotes, and that is the case study. So Zeke presumably has questioned his friends about these things, like how are they different from their fathers, and there are there are some definite uh, similarities and then real differences and these it's a very complicated time for young men well and i should you know it's, I, what i'm thinking too is that there's a crossover between the the two primary concerns of your book that we've talked about so far which is this glut of images and trying to navigate life and narrate experience from within this glut yeah and then also what it means to be masculine in contemporary times. And I speak from my own experience that, uh, Twitter in particular, I think that my experience of, uh, online life uh, on, on Twitter, because that's the, my primary social mode has, uh, changed my perception of masculinity and has been at times a maddening (laughs) education in feminism in, uh, you know, gender based concerns. Like there's a lot of that on there. And so I'm trying to parse that on a daily basis. You feel you're constantly seeing arguments. You're constantly, you know, being presented with links to, and you have a young daughter and I have a young daughter, which I think has heightened. I mean, you know, yes, it has, it has, it heightens, (laughs) it heightens a a man's, I, hopefully I think it's a good thing for a man to be more interested in female concerns when he has a daughter but I've, I've seen people on Twitter get hammered for talking about, well, like now I care about women because I have a daughter. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. So I don't want to, I don't want to wade into that one. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's not, uh, I mean, I would also find that sort of obnoxious, but I would rather uh, someone started caring about their 
daughter and who someone cared about their daughter and then uh saw women's lives differently not as an other you know not as something either to be conquered or <laughs> despised or loved or but as uh, human beings or something that's alien you know i think a lot of well-meaning fathers of previous generations especially as adolescence comes on would peel away a little bit or would uh, i think uh you know the the primary caregiving responsibility for the tough stuff would fall upon the mother right and the fathers would just be like okay i'm out you know right. and then when you start to date i'll be the guy with the shotgun on the front porch or whatever you know like that old trope <laughs> yes, yes but it wasn't really like there weren't like heart to hearts there wasn't engagement with that stuff and i feel like that's softening yes i think so and uh i think that and i said this last night i did i did a gig at the hammer with Stephen prina asking me uh, some really, uh, really interesting questions, too, um, that we may find in 50 years or 100 years that the women's movement and feminism has uh, changed men more than women. Mm. Uh, seeing men be fathers in the way that they weren't 40 years ago uh, is kind of beautiful. The idea that men will be house husbands that was considered really a no-no not so long ago. I mean, the the cha and men's relationship to their children means a lot to them. Yeah. And I don't know that, I don't know what they knew, speaking so generally, but I can see that it's very important in the lives of my male friends who have children. It's um, as important as it's ever been to women. So you're encouraged. Oh, I find that encouraging. Yeah. Are, are you ever frustrated? I mean, do you ever get frustrated with online culture, um, contemporary feminism? Like, do you find yourself bristling against it? I, you know, we there's this term in biology: ontogeny reco recapitulates phylogeny, that the life of the individual repeats the life of the whole. Uh, you know, and uh, obviously in uterus. We see every uh, fetus have the same development. And in a way, that's kind of any contemporary re relationship to things that you've already been involved with will be another learning process and change. So do I, I get frustrated with um, a, a notion that, one, feminists hate men. That's just... Uh, I think having to fight against that is a waste of time. I think it's really, really stupid. Uh, I get frustrated that I sometimes have to hear the same thing yeah. <laughs> again and again. But on the other hand, I I also teach and um, one semester a year writing students, and they're going through it. They're in a place... They're 19 or 20, and they're trying to figure things out. Uh, I ask my students to write from the male point of view if they're female and the female point of view if they're male sometimes in an exercise. Girls are more resistant to doing that. Why do you think that is? I think, again, the limitations that uh, girls and women have uh, incorporated are huge self-censorship 
one girl said to me, and I'm using girl because I'm, they're really quite young, said to me, um, but I can't write from the point of view of a boy. I don't know. I don't know what they feel like. I said, you've been raised by a father. You have a brother. You're around boys all the time. Imagine what one of them thinks like, thinks about. You can do that. The boys don't have that problem. Hmm. They, there were many more of them that took on that challenge and were excited by it. Do you, do you find that the, the output or the creative work that you read, uh, like that one of the genders does it better than the other? Like are, bo- are women better or are the girls better at, at writing the boys or the boys better at writing the girls? Do you find that the, the renderings are better from one? No, oh. no. Uh, I've had some terrific male students and terrific female students. Uh, I think the time was where, and maybe still, where the the males will talk more than the females, and so you need to encourage them. And then again, sometimes you'll have a class where the girls are fantastically vocal. So it's it's hard to it's hard to tell. Uh, and you know, another thing that comes to mind as I think about your new book and I think about your work more broadly is this idea of starting with questions. Because I feel like it's it's kind of an inversion of how most people seem to do it, where I feel like a lot of people will work on a piece of fiction because of some uh, you know some instinct or some character they have in their head, or they'll start with a title. There's a million different ways to approach it, but the central themes or concerns or questions of the book a lot of times don't really make themselves clear mm-hmm. until the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, because that, that's happened to me where it's like, oh, I had no idea. I was, this, is, this is what it was bothering me. Mm-hmm. It takes mm-hmm. the whole process almost to finally mm-hmm. get to where you realize that, mm-hmm. but you flip it. You start with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, are you, are you conscious of that? Yes, I am. And again, that's why I think uh, Steve Prina's notion that these are projects um, uh, maybe is is closer to the mark. Not that I deny that I write novels. I do, although some people would think they're not novels, especially the last two. But um, I, yeah, I, there's an idea that's bothering me or that keeps coming up with with each of the books, novels I've written. I, I, every one uh, came from how do I tell the story about uh, what does it mean to be an American abroad uh, uh, how do I narrate that story? What is what is Americanness that was in motion sickness, and how can I make something that's full of coincidence work? Because in Haunted Houses, which was my first novel, I have three female characters, and I wanted to write about the harshness of a girl's life, how difficult it is to to become a girl. To, to fit into that category. And because there's all this work that was done or is still being done about becoming a man and there are rites of passages. But I didn't feel there was that for haunted ha- for girls. And I didn't think there was a, the, a literature that I was reading that spoke to this question. Hmm. And, but... Um, so I had three girls, and I didn't have any of them meet in the novel. You know, the general thing would be the more conventional or traditional approach was they've all gone to college together. You, you give yourself really hard puzzles to put together. <laughs> yes, 
<laughs> You're torturing yourself. <laughs> I do. I, I think, you know, um, my mother once said to me when I, when I was about, or many times said to me when I was very little, when I would say oh, I, I was bored, uh, mommy, what can I do? And she would say, go hit your head against a wall. <laughs> and you I took, think I took do- it to heart. <laughs> I took it to heart or to head. <laughs> and so I didn't have the girls meet because I thought, well, they're meeting in the container of the novel. And that was considered, you know, crazy or whatever. And, uh, I think was part of why I'm considered an experimental. Yes, it was a different thing to do, but there was no uh, logic that I could find that would make it necessary that all those characters meet. What, why, I would say to myself, what was the necessity of that? Other than, other than like the, you know, the, the commercial expectation or, you know what I'm saying? Like what people are kind of pre-programmed to expect from a narrative. And, and there's great literature that, I mean, I've read that great literature, uh, not all of it, of course, um, where everyone meets and everyone is, you know, involved in everybody else's life. And those are great books. But I didn't want to do that. And I didn't see the necessity of doing it. Are you stubborn? In some ways, yes, very stubborn about my work, I think. I'm not a stubborn friend. I don't like um, to argue uh, about things like which restaurant should we go to. Do you pick? Is that what you were like? I'll say wherever you want to go. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's okay with me. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm kind of that way One too. friend said, I have six restaurants we, we should go to, we could go to. And I said, what's one of them? And she, I said, well, let's go there. She said, don't you want to hear about the other five? I said, no, that's fine. That's how I, I, I was. I go to the farmer's market, like right by our house to get coffee on yeah. the weekends. These guys will grind it up for you or whatever. And they're always like, what do you want? Do you want like Ethiopian, Rwandan, Colombian? I'm like, guys, like I, at six o'clock in the morning, it all tastes the same to me. Like I'm, I'm going to trust you. <laughs> just, just I'm in your hands. Okay. Like you know better than I, my family was very argumentative and, uh, I really don't, like arguing. Um, I've learned that one could have a discussion about a problem, but I always feel uncomfortable. Mm. I just want it to be over and things to be all right. Where are you from? Woodmere, Long Island. I was born in Brooklyn. And then my family, when I was about four and a half, we, my father had a house built out on Long Island and that's where I grew up. You know, I've never been to Long Island. I've been to New York a million times, but I've never been to Long Island. I feel well, like I'm missing it's something. it's a Long Island. <laughs> it's extremely It's very long. narrow. Um, I grew up uh, about a 20-minute drive from the Atlantic Ocean, and that was a big part of my childhood, going in the summers either to summer camp or going to the ocean. And it's still some of my fondest memories is is in the winter also, uh, my father taking me and my two older sisters, uh, one sister's nine years older, one sister's six years older, and taking us to walk along the sand in November when the when the ocean waves are very uh, harsh and big and the, the ocean looks green or gray. So beautiful. Yeah. And like, so there's the three, three of you, mm-hmm. three girls, and you're the baby? Mm-hmm. And um, when you say argumentative, like, are we talking like kitchen table, whole family dinner, 
everybody debating something intellectual? I or... wish it were no, no, no. no. <laughs> it's um, it was pretty, pretty crazy, pretty crazy. Nonetheless. I survived. And your, did your sisters, like, what was your relationship like with your sisters? I would well, imagine you guys kind of leaned on one another. Well, my older sisters are only three years apart, but I'm not, nine and six years apart from them. So I kind of grew up as uh, partly an o- only child, uh, and which had its benefits and deficits, I think. But I, uh, at a certain point, both of them were out of the house. By the time I was 10. Right. Neither of them was there very much. What uh, what kind of kid were you? Were you? What kind of kid? Well, my oldest sister says I was um, I was a happy kid. She thinks, but I know that I was a very anxious kid. Uh, an old friend of mine through Facebook got in touch with me, and she said one of the nicest things uh, about me as a child which was, I guess, we used to play together. We would play uh, games. I would go to her house. Her name is Gail. She lived a few blocks from me. She was on Derby Avenue. I was on Forest Avenue. And uh, she said, you were so sweet, Lynn. You never said any bad things about anybody. And I know lots of people want to be told how smart they were, but... That made me feel better than anything. Right. That I was sweet, that she, that I was nice, uh, you know, nice to play with. I tell that to my daughter all the time. I'm like, just be kind. Because I feel that there's a lot of pressure as a parent to get it right. So I'm always trying to just like, let's just make this simple. Like, be a kind person. And what else do I say? And like, give it your best. And I don't want to be a parent who's like, everything you do is perfect, because I think that can be kind of damaging. Right. And you're just, I'm always trying to like do the least amount of harm. So it's like, be kind, try your best. <laughs> well, I didn't come from a supportive parental background. Maybe, but maybe it toughened you. Well, I, I, I don't know if it, uh, maybe. I have, I've had years of psychoanalytic psychotherapy, so. Um, did, but that help, I, did that help you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Still helping. I might do that. Oh, it's... I, I, there's a, an idiotic idea that it takes away your... Cre- it's just the opposite. Right. It's just the opposite. Okay, so let's stop here, because this is, I think, a big component of um, your work. And I think it's something that distinguishes it, is that you have uh, such a facility for articulating the experience of the mind. And that's got to be an outgrowth because that's when you go into analysis and you spend time, you're leaning into all of that. You're, you're, you're uh, sort of forcing yourself to dive in, which I think there can be some resistance to, especially if it's difficult stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, is, that, sure. is that accurate? That's true. So, that's I mean, true. I'm, in in um, analysis, you're thinking about what you're thinking. You're hearing yourself and a good analyst will by his or her interventions when they come uh, enable you further to hear what you're saying. And then you are understanding better why what you're experiencing is what it is. Yeah. It's, com- it's, it's, it's a complex process because it's not an immediate thing. Mm-hmm. It's really quite slow. 
And you, you have know. to, you, and you have to work at it. Yeah. Uh, and like the thing too, that like, cause I, I do a lot of meditation, which is like basically watching the conversations you have with yourself mm-hmm. and it can be so demoralizing, but also interesting to see how repetitive it is. <laughs> well, it's, when I wrote American genius, a comedy, yeah. uh, which came out of an idea of thinking about sensitivity, it seemed to me, uh, that so many people in America were just thinking about themselves and their sensitivity to this kind of food or this environment or that. And yet, um, at the same time, the U.S. did a prevent, preemptive strike against Iraq. And it, the, the kind of um, paradox of that really bothered me. Whether like this ultra inwardness and then there's the, this like external aggression. That's right. And we, we Americans were living in that. We were producing that in different ways. So it, it, American Genius, a comedy came out of that. And I was really interested also in writing consciousness. Mm. And so in a way, it's my most psychoanalytic book, not psychological, but but psychoanalytic in the sense that she's watching her thoughts, she's thinking her thoughts, and tremendous amount of repetitiveness. Because we go back to, if you're walking down the street, you'll remember that your mother didn't let you have a dog. (laughs) (laughs) And that thought will come back and back and back in very different moments in your life. Or that you could have been nicer to so-and-so, and you regret so, and now you can't tell them. Yeah. And that will repeat and repeat and repeat. So there are certain things that, to my character, whose name you don't find out till almost three-quarters of the book is over, she's, she's having these repetitive thoughts. Well, I think it, that is the way people think. I think what you discover in meditation is... A reality for just, most people, but just without like the guide with like, I think that's why analysis is potentially appealing to me is that like to have somebody there who can help you, uh, like tease out the patterns and help you sort of like walk you through it. Yes. I'm just like watching the horror show <laughs> and that, and you know, that in and of itself is beneficial. Yes. Uh, but it might, it might hasten the process of understanding to have a guide. I, I believe so. I mean, it's just been part of what has allowed me to function. I don't know that I would have been able to be a writer had I not done this because I wanted to, I decided to be a writer when I was eight years old. Okay. And I was determined to be a writer, but I was so insecure and so neurotic about so many things, so anxious that it took me years before I could show anybody anything. Hmm. And in fact, my first publications were anonymous. Really? A friend and I, she's now dead, um, we started a magazine in 1975-76 called Paranoid's Anonymous Newsletter. <laughs> we had three issues, and then we fell out. <laughs> you're, talk, you're talking to a guy whose web, one, you know, my website is called The Nervous Breakdown, so we're right on the same page. <laughs> right. Paranoid's Anonymous Newsletter, or PAN. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was all anonymous. There were no editors' names, no uh, you know, writers' names, nothing. 
Nothing. Well, and so what instigated at eight years old this desire to be a writer? Do you know what it was? I Well, I think they're always, you know, it's overdetermined, I think. But I think there were a number of factors. One, I was the baby. I don't think I had as much say in what was going on. I was observing everything. There, there was a sort of chaotic household. I loved reading. And when... I was learning to write, uh, and we started writing compositions. I guess that was in the third grade. I loved it. And um, the story is that I remember uh, is that my teacher, and I forget her name, gave us an assignment to write about Charles the Great, Charlemagne. And I went home that weekend and uh, started writing, and I was so excited writing this. I wrote, I start, one was Charlemagne, Man of War, and then I wrote another Charlemagne, Man of Peace. <laughs> <laughs> and a, what's funny about it is that that sense of contradiction pertains in my work still. <laughs> wow. It was there from the beginning. It was there from the beginning. So you begin publishing. Uh, first of all, where did you go to school? Or did you go to school? Oh, yes. You did. Yes. I was a wild man. No. <laughs> I went to Hunter College. In the city. In the city. And then I went to live in Europe in the 70s. And then when I came back, uh, I, I had studied English literature and minored in American history. And I took all my electives in studio art, painting. Right. At Hunter, which had and still has a very, very good art department, studio art department. Uh, then I, by about 1980-81, I went to graduate school in sociology at CUNY Grad School because I realized there was all of this stuff I hadn't read, and I wanted to learn it. Uh, Max Weber, Marx, uh, you know, more of Freud. I, I had been reading Freud, but uh, the ethno-methodologist. I just, and sociology is, not, you know, people think, oh, sociology, study of society. But in fact, there are all these great people in sociology, Max Weber, uh, Durkheim, and newer people. And then you've got all the ethno-methodologists, uh, Irving Goffman, and so on. And... Um, I went, I would take a course or two courses every semester uh, toward a Ph.D. I did fulfill all the credits for a Ph.D., but I didn't really want a Ph.D. I didn't take any of the exams. Uh, I, I just... Why not? What did you... Oh, you just wanted, you wanted the knowledge. You I wanted the knowledge. I, I knew that there were a lot of new ideas, including French theory, that I had not studied in college. And I I was reading literature, uh, uh, but there were things that, you know, I hadn't yet read Bart, for instance. I hadn't read uh, Walter Benjamin. I hadn't read Kristeva. There was a lot of stuff that I hadn't read, although I was reading a lot of very good literature. But isn't that always the case? I mean, I guess you, like you just had this acute sense of knowing what you didn't know. Yeah. But it's kind of it's kind of a bottomless hole. You can... Oh, it is. It is bottomless. It is bottomless. the The thing is, at least not to imagine that you know enough ever. Uh, what happens to people when they get out of college is sometimes they stop reading. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think that's what, you know, like people often, uh, in addition to calling you experimental and genre bending and all this different stuff, they also call you a writer's writer. Mm. And having talked to hundreds of writers now on the show, I can point to a small handful of them, you among them, who, you know, get tagged with that. And I think what it is, is that people who write and who love and live in books can recognize it when someone has really done the work as a reader because mm. it shows up in the writing. Mm -hmm. And I feel that like there are some people who can write beautifully, mm -hmm. you know, they can publish a beautiful novel, but they're not like dogged in their reading the mm -hmm. way that some writers, like some of the writers that come in here have read, it feels like they've read everything. Yes. Way more than I've read. I mean, I, I, I find that when I'm working on a novel and this, this is the problem with being a writer is that you don't read as much. Mm -hmm. uh, or a podcaster. Or it, a podcaster. <laughs> well, you have to read. You have a lot of stuff to read. But to it's, always, it's always like at hyperspeed, you yeah. know, because it's coming, it's coming every week. Well, when you particularly love something, you should read it again. Yeah, I try to. And then the problem, though, is that I, the, the best time window for me is at night before bed. I'm so, I'm so tired. Yes. I just, I pick it up and I wake up with it and, or it like falls on my face. And you have <laughs> young children. Right. See, I never did. Um, my husband, who's a musician, David Hofstra, great bass player. Yeah. Uh, we, neither of us ever wanted children and I never had any urge at all ever. Uh, and so I didn't have that difficulty, and I don't think the difficulty of raising children. I also didn't have what my friends tell me, ones who have children, is glorious also from having a child. I like my friends' children, so, but I'm uh, impatient. I, I'm a very impatient person, or, or I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Sure, you know, I get it. I get I get criticized by my friends because when I want to leave a restaurant when, when finished or a party, I just want to go. You just go. I just want to go. I can relate to that. And coat on and my friend is saying, Lynn, Lynn, I haven't gotten my coat on yet. <laughs> by the way, if Lynn gets up suddenly and leaves the microphone, you'll know why. <laughs> <laughs> enough. I've had enough of yeah, this. Yeah, she's had enough. Just walk out. Mic That's called a mic drop in uh, podcast parlance. So... Um, I want to get back to you. Uh, By the way, being a writer's writer, I believe, is is the kiss of death. You think so? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What does that mean, kiss of death? Kiss of death in what, in what sense? Uh, it means that people hear that. Uh, a general reader hears that and thinks, I'm not going to like this oh, book. Or this it's only gonna... for other writers. Right. Or it's going to be, but I don't know. Like, I feel like that, <laughs> I feel like there's some truth to what you say, but I also feel like that it speaks to... Uh, a, a work's staying power. Well, that would be nice. I do know that um, I like going to hear other writers read, particularly the writers who are coming along. You, you can't read everything, as you know. In yeah. fact, there, are more, there just seems the impossibility of reading anything when you're writing. That's um, when I was working on uh, this book, Men in Apparitions. It was very hard for me to read any contemporary fiction. And see, okay, that makes me feel better because I do so much reading in nonfiction. I read a lot about Buddhism. I, I find myself reading a lot of stuff that isn't fiction right. when I'm sitting here trying to write it. Right. So maybe that's normal. Or there are ideas that you're entertaining or to get it like really immersed in another narrative would somehow confuse the issue. I think novelists are generalists. 
I think we read, uh, often we read what we need in order to write a book. And so we're the non-academic, you know, intellectual wanderers out there trying to find what we need. We, we, we read for our own writing. That's right. It's like scavengers. That's right. We are scavengers. And, you know, we'll pick a quote here, pick the quote there. Uh, I read a lot of stuff for uh, American uh, Genius of Comedy, but even more for Men and Apparitions because I have a historical figure in there, Clover Hooper Adams, and I needed to do my research. And why did I say research? I don't know, oh. but I liked it. You <laughs> emphasized the wrong syllable. <laughs> I did indeed. <laughs> research. Yeah, there you I go. needed to do my research. And I did. And, and I think not to be a, a complete charlatan, I try to do more than I want to do yeah. in, in research. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, when you're dealing with a real person or, you know, you're dealing with history, like I feel like there's a, a responsibility. And a fascinating history, Clover Hooper Adams and her friends, her, Henry James and her husband, Henry Adams, you know, the historian. I mean, an extraordinary, um, extraordinary group of people. I was just thinking about this um, maybe this morning. It was, and it was about like, I don't think I've ever lived in a time or in a place where like, like quote unquote, it was happening. Do you know what I'm saying? There are these incredible pockets of time in history where like this confluence of people and events at the right lo location and artistic movement. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like, have you ever felt like you were in the midst of something like that? Yes, but I, I, I didn't, th I didn't objectify it. Mm -hmm. But when I came back from living in Europe toward the end of the 70s, yeah. I walked into a really fabulous period in New York City where a lot of people were coming up then, including Barbara Kruger and Richard Prince and Cindy Sherman and uh, Gary Indiana and Patrick McGraw and other writers. And there was a fusion. That's when I met David Hofstra and he... There was the, the clubs that were having readings and music at the same time. Uh, and it was in Manhattan. The, the boroughs didn't exist to us Manhattanites at that time. It's totally different now, and that's yeah. good. Uh, but there was a lot of activity that I was taking part of, taking part in, and... Now it's being um, commodified, you know, the 80s. And uh, it's as if you get fixed into a vitrine. And I don't feel, I don't feel nostalgic for that. I think when you're young, um, everything you're doing can feel that it, it's, it's it. It's like supercharged. It's supercharged. And yeah, but see, like I'm, you talk about going to Europe. Like I'm one of these like uh, sort of... Uh feel like kind of an idiot in a way, but I was like, I want to go to Paris. I'd read so much about it. I want to like see this place. Yes. But I went like, it was like so far from being over. It was done. And I went back. It's like a museum. Do you know what I'm saying? It wasn't like the Paris of the twenties or whatever. And so I always like the revisionist part of me is like, why didn't I go someplace else? Like there's got to be a place that was making it new. And the best I could come up with was to go to the place that was like almost a hundred years ago. <laughs> well, it, I think there there's stuff happening in Paris now, but it's not the Paris of the 20s or 30s. But we don't really know I what that was either because right. it's fabled. I, 
the first person I ever interviewed was the surrealist Merit Oppenheim. And she was in Paris, and I was in Amsterdam, and I was asked to go interview her. I really had very little. I was very young, and I had very little idea who she was. And I made the stupidest mistake that no one should ever make. And What's I, that? I say this now to the listening audience. <laughs> Do never say to somebody. I said to her, what was it like in the 20s and 30s? <laughs> <laughs> and she looked at me. She was a very kind, elegant woman, great artist. And she looked at me. She said, the same as it is now. I'm friends with artists. I go to have dinner out. I make my work. Right. And at some point in the 90s, I got asked by somebody, what was it like to be alive during the 80s or something? <laughs> and I thought, oh, <laughs> but you know, like what strikes me as an interesting parallel between like the the New York of the late seventies, early eighties, and the Paris of the twenties is that maybe part of the reason we fetishize these times is because they were both times when these really um, incredible cities were affordable to artists. You had post war Paris where you could get by on very little, and then you had you know New York when it could like the Lower Manhattan was like wide open to artists, and you could live there, and it was you know very very cheap. The whole city was cheap. A taxi ride was nothing. Well, in Berlin now, and maybe it's over already in Berlin, but that's its, that's its reputation. People are thinking of Mexico City, I hear now. Okay. Uh, uh, so it's, it's like, moving around. But it's like buy on the rumor, sell on the news. Like yeah. Where it's really happening, no one's even talked about it yet. <laughs> Some people are very clever that way and knew to buy in Brooklyn 20 years ago. Right. I am absolutely dense about that kind of thing and i uh, the idea of being a uh, somebody who refurbishes or redoes the whole house and stuff like that i can't i can't even paint a wall i get so oh my god this yeah. is so awful i'm like the least handy man <laughs> on the planet and i have so i'm kind of self-conscious about it like i don't know how to do anything yeah well or, it's changing for for men, Brad. but I feel like I have a responsibility to at least know how to hang a picture. I'm terrible. <laughs> like I don't trust myself. Like I can try, but I don't. I don't want to like ruin the wall. I bet there wall. are books on picture hanging. <laughs> <laughs> I could watch a YouTube video, but that's a, that's way too involved for me. Um, so let's get to your European years. I'm I'm interested to know because uh, you have this pocket of time where you're kind of a young aspiring artist and you're doing that expatriation thing, which I think a lot of us. I think it's actually a really healthy exercise to get out of your homeland, and uh, it gives you, uh, you know, obviously a wealth of experience, but also some perspective and uh, like a, I don't know, less of a fixed sense of identity or something. Oh, very much so, and that's what I dealt with in Motion Sickness, my second novel. Uh, I didn't really realize that I was an American until I lived in Europe. Uh, I had no idea that so many of my attitudes were American attitudes and that they differed from my Dutch friends and my English friends and s some French friends and very, very different. And I, I would not have known that. I might have thought that I was a New Yorker to some extent because I'd gone to Hunter College, but it was shocking really, to identify, to identify yourself differently, to see that you were carrying these national characteristics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found when I was like traveling overseas as a young man, 
like one thing that surprised me was that because people with, especially, you know, I guess this was like late nineties, early aughts, people were very quick to criticize America, like to your face sometimes, mm -hmm. not all the time. Mm -hmm. But I found that when it happened, I would rarely respond. I was usually pretty passive in my response. Sometimes I agreed, you mm -hmm. know, it was like an astute criticism, but other times I could feel just like this little twinge in me, like a little bit of defensiveness or bristling, like, Hey, you know, that's my, it's, that's not that simple. Or you, I don't know, just like some impulse to defend my country, which I'm very quick to criticize, mm -hmm. but that surprised me. Yes. I didn't expect to feel that. I, um, I would feel a kind of, uh, now, a kind of sadness uh. Uh, be because our country is under such assault from very demonic forces. Yeah. Really destructive. Uh, he's a really destructive person. That's right. And it's hard to understand how he got to be, but I'm less interested in his psychology than his effects, and um, which are, I think, so debilitating. It feels like we're all, like, because he's president, it can sometimes feel like we all have an abusive dad, or, you know, it, it has this like, withering psychological effect, like he's just uh, unpredictable, I don't know. He's kind of predictable, too, you know. Well, the, he's predictably unpredictable. You know he's yeah. going to say, yes, let's lower, raise the gun age the next day. No, yeah. let's not. You know now that you cannot trust anything that he says, that he will stick to that. Yeah. Unless it's something like um, that it works for business, like the tax thing. And even then he... Remember, he said, no, maybe it should be 19% or not 21%. 20. Of course, that didn't happen, but he was just, you know, kidding around. Arbitrary. Or arbitrary, teasing. Yeah. You know, very much of a tease. Was he someone who uh, figured into your imagination and your like day-to-day -day life as a New Yorker? Because... Oh, no, no. That guy was despised in New York. Well, that's what I mean, though, because I feel like... When the election was happening, I read a lot of people on Twitter and uh -huh. in, in articles and essays that I would read talk about how, like, New Yorkers have known that this guy is a joke for decades. For decades, yes. Like, and, and if you look at the the election results, you know, his results in on, in Manhattan, he won, like, you know, like a very, very, very small fraction right. of the votes. Like, everybody across the spectrum sort of knew that he's a con man. yeah. A con man, just a, a flash, you know, a flash in the pan or whatever. Um, nobody liked him. He was always a wannabe. He would show up at things, and he was grotesque. You ever see him? Uh, no, mm. I never did. You notice that his face is less orange than it used to be? Well, he's probably responding to criticism. <laughs> <laughs> he gets He gets bagged on a lot for that. I don't know. He's a mess. It's, he, a, it's hard to believe that uh, this has happened. Right. And it, it feels like a kind of a cartoonish nightmare, and you don't know exactly what the ending is going to be. Well, we're all hoping and praying for Mueller. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but who knows? I'm sure Trump is trying to fire Mueller in every which way that he can. I, I don't know. And uh, the re Republicans in the Congress, there's no pushback from them. No. All this stuff. There are a few who every once in a while come out and say something. Usually 
even that guy Dowdy, Trey Dowdy is his name. Yeah, Gowdy. Gowdy. Yeah. <laughs> he's sort of Dowdy to me. Great, great. <laughs> he looks like a kind of like a he's got like a ferret like appearance. Yes, he is ferret like. Yeah. Even he, now that he's not gonna run again, he's coming forward. And that's really such a disgusting part of the kind of politics that's being played now. Yeah, profiles encourage, right? Yeah. I yeah. just yeah, I feel I almost I almost feel more antipathy towards uh, the GOP Congress that's like a you know abetting this than I do towards Trump, who I feel like has got a screw loose, and yeah. we've sort they, of known the, his number forever. If the Republicans in Congress, you know, had some spine, they wouldn't be just saying yes all the time, trying to figure. And you know, these midterm elections that are going on, these special ones, not going too well for the Republicans. Let's hope it continues. That's what we can hope. So, in, like, let's let's take a look at this. Uh, through the lens of psychotherapy, mm-hmm. just to sort of loop back a little bit, because this is a moment, I think, to reflect on the the state of this country, the national soul uh, or the national psyche. Like you talked about that um, interesting moment where everybody was so kind of turned inward and yet we were launching a... a What's a preemptive word? war. A preemptive war uh, in Iraq. Like, what do you make psychoanalytically of the the MAGA crowd and of the invi- like the political environment that enabled this to happen? I um, I'm not sure where I'm getting this from, but I was talking with someone and she brought up the idea of disappointment that perhaps there's great grief in a lot of people who were hoping for the American dream to hit them. And because of very severe changes in the way the economy works, especially in the last 30 years, that they are suffering uh, psychologically and I don't think it's because they haven't been, you know, I don't, I know there are a lot of people who say we didn't reach out, the Democrats didn't reach out to the workers and so on. And I don't think actually that's the way to break it down. You could, but I think, I mean, and people do. Um, but again, it was in certain pockets and and of course, Hillary Clinton didn't go there, and she should have. But I don't think it would have. I don't. I don't know. We don't know what caused that terrible guy to get into office completely. We don't understand it. I think we'll be. I think we'll be trying to figure that out for a long time. For a long time. And but grief. I think there may be some kind of underlying grief about the country that the country uh, is not what it was supposed to have been. And this, I think, maybe is building since um, Watergate and the Vietnam War. Mm. Uh, I think that the um, cultural divide from the 60s on still pertains. Yeah. And I think that social issues, if they come to dominate everything uh, more than more than even economic issues. I mean, you have these evangelicals supporting Trump. Right, which is, to me, like the height of hypocrisy, and it just it seems insane. Well, so, something like, uh, you know, everyone sins. 
Mm-hmm. Because unless it's a Democrat. <laughs> unless it's a Democrat. Unless it's Bill Clinton. Uh, you, you know, you have the idea of the, the um, aggression leveled uh, against Hillary Clinton for a number of reasons, but also that we had a black president and uh, the resentment there. And But maybe there's such great disappointment in the kinds of ideals that people had and uh, were crushed by, and it's not a single kind of disappointment. It's interesting, years ago, years and years ago, when you, when you were unemployed, you might move to another state to get a job. You might, but a lot of the people who were unemployed didn't move, you know, who were suddenly out of work. Uh, that's interesting. Now, maybe they were so discouraged that they didn't think anything would work, or maybe because of the way the American education system is being so screwed up, they didn't have the tools, not, uh, you know, the intellectual tools, the educations that they needed. And that's disappointing. Well, you know, it's like uh, the phrase that keeps coming to mind as I listen to you is that anger is a lazy form of grief. And so I, that's I've never heard that, but I think that that may be true. I, I think that this the destructiveness of a, of a Trump to support that and to somehow there may be some kind of major schadenfreude going on. Look. Look! Look at what's happening to you because of you're going to now suffer the way I'm suffering. Well, when you talk about the evangelicals, because it is hard to figure like, like a guy as like blatantly immoral as Trump. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you couldn't pick a guy as far from the values that the evangelicals uh, supposedly are invested in. Yeah. But one thing that he does very well is he torments the people with whom evangelicals disagree with most politi- You know, politically, he's an expert troll. Yeah. And I think that that provides some uh, emotional satisfaction. Yeah, that the- pleasure. In it, there's a kind of pleasure. So you have people who are grieving because they don't have what they want or what they thought they would have, supporting somebody who really doesn't care about them but hurts what hurts their enemies. Yeah. Hurts what they think of as their enemies. So let's talk about the other side of it. And I think that this is like, I have these conversations with authors frequently because Mm -hmm. it's on all of our minds. And I will sometimes get pushback from people who say like, Hey, make it about literature. I feel like this is the, one of the the great narratives I've ever been witness to. I mean, how can you avoid it? It's the narrative right now that I think is percolating in all of our brains. And, um, just to finish, because I think this is related to the grief um, logic. There's also going to be, I think, a reckoning at some point. Like this isn't going to last forever because nothing does. And there's a there's a large trauma <laughs> that's that's uh, being inflicted upon people of conscience in this country. I feel it. I'm sure you feel it. I think most of my listeners are feeling it. And that is going to have to be dealt with after the fact. Like. Uh, how do we begin to cope with that as somebody who's gone through analysis, you know, like how, what's the healing process going to be like from this? It seems like it's going to be a long time. I don't know. I think it's, um, so many things are happening every day that we, I, maybe you, many of my friends thought unimaginable. 
Mm. The worst. How could he do this? And how could he do that? And how could he do... And it's one thing after another. And it's being hit... You're being hit in the face constantly. Okay, there are different things that might play out. Maybe he won't be elected in in two years. Maybe the Congress will change. These these are... Robert Mueller is going to save us. (laughs) These are positive ideas. Maybe... um, uh, the effect of those students in Park Lane who uh, are so... You mean uh, the kids at, uh, from Florida? From Florida. Yeah. Who are so uh, not... They're not going to take it, you know? Like with that movie, you're not going to take it anymore. They're not going to take it anymore. And I think that's having an enormous impact, at least so far. It's so, having an enormous impact. Um so there are reasons to be hopeful. I'm not a cynic. I don't know how you recover exactly from a trauma. I don't know how. It's it's interesting. I was in Kyoto, Japan, about eight months after Fukushima. Oh, wow. Okay. And by then they had discovered that the government had lied to them about the radioactivity. Now, the Japanese, unlike Americans, they expected never to be lied to by their government. Hmm. That This became a huge, huge national, um, not just disgrace, but incredible disappointment to these people. Because I, I was there with, with Dennis Johnson, wonderful, great De- Dennis Johnson. Oh, wow. And... We were talking to future MFA students and Japanese, Japanese, oh. who, who were, there was going to be an MFA program opening up, uh, opened up for the first time in Japan by Ryo Niyamoto, a writer himself, and um, and he knew both of us and brought us over to talk with them. And those students, one, were so grateful that we came, we Americans came, because they felt like pariah. And two, they would say to Dennis and to me, what can we do about this, about our government? It wasn't I. It was as a nation. They were... uh, I, I had never been talked to like that. And, of course, I didn't have an answer, just the way I don't have an answer for you now. But they thought about themselves as part of a nation, that needs to solve this problem. Hmm. Now, this is a really interesting point for Americans because we are so many different kinds of Americans. And we have uh, our identities now are separate from a notion that there is an American, many separate. But so healing in that way uh, will be even more difficult. Yeah. For us, I, I think. Uh, and, you know, there will be some people I blame forever for Hillary Clinton having lost. <laughs> right. Forever. I will uh, always blame them. Like who? Sarah, Susan Sarandon. <laughs> yeah, right. The, Bur- said, the Bernie Sanders or the people who were... Well, the people who could not switch over to Clinton. Right. That she had been so damaged by some of the things that were said by her originally from the far right that the some on the left 
picked up and used against her really horrible stuff. Sarandon, I believe I'm quoting her or paraphrasing her, said that she thought in the election um, that uh, Clinton was more uh, dangerous than Trump. Hmm. Yeah, Can you imagine a, saying that? I, see, I find that ridiculous. I was I was in, enthusiastic about Bernie, and I happily voted for Hillary. I don't understand how somebody could go from being enthusiastic about Bernie to being like, no, there's no difference between Trump and that. That will that will frustrate me forever. Yes, well, <laughs> it frustrates me forever too. Yeah, well, and I want to talk to you about uh, like when you when you when you were talking about your experiences in Japan and how these students were referring to their, um, their, their experience of citizenship in the first person plural. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's something that I feel like we need to move back toward Mm -hmm. in this country, despite Mm -hmm. all the different identities Mm and, um, in this great diversity Mm -hmm. that we have, which should be a strength. Mm -hmm. There needs to be, you know, like a common set of values Mm -hmm. or a, a sense of national identity or a sense of togetherness that we feel, which would hopefully lead to a saner, uh, politics, but Japan is a very homogeneous nation. It's much smaller. It's dense uh, population-wise, and they're not too great about foreigners. Right? They like yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's six of one, half a dozen of another. This is. Uh, it was wonderful to hear that, but then part of their seeing themselves as as a nation requires uh, or. Is 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 happening because of their xenophobia? Hmm. I want to I want to ask you, like on a related note, like I'm sort of move. I want to try to move uh, back in the direction of the concerns of your book, if I can try to make an elegant segue, <laughs> or an inelegant, <laughs> or an inelegant, or a clumsy, you know, segue. But it, it is related because uh, when we began talking about trying to narrate one's experience from within this glut of images. Hmm. I wonder if you have thoughts on the idea that living on a computer screen, which is where most of us Mm -hmm. spend our days, Mm -hmm. whether it's on a phone or it's on a laptop or whatever, Mm -hmm. most of us are staring at a screen for the majority of our days. Mm -hmm. We're interacting a lot. There's a lot of lateral movement. It's a constant switching, switching, Mm -hmm. switching, going for the dopamine or whatever it is that you get from, you know, a click or a like or a, you know, um, is there a flattening effect? Like we, we have, um, like you talked about earlier, you know, like people tend to be really inward and concerned with themselves and taking selfies Mm. (laughs) and, you know, like we said, trying to get likes on Facebook and trying to get Mm. this approval. But there is some sense of like lost identity. It's easy to feel like, like, I don't know, uh, adrift or like, there's so much coming at you from so many different voices that I can sometimes feel like, what could I possibly add to this? It has a deadening effect. Do you feel that, uh, I don't know, that that we lose something in this environment, um, some sense of like individual richness or depth? You know, I, I, I really don't or i don't or and more i don't know because every time has its differences and when i was 
researching a, a nonfiction book I did called Bookstore, The Life and Times of Jeanette Watson and Books and Company, looking back into the history of the book and uh, and how this was going to affect the book or that, or radio was terrible. And, right. Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine another consciousness and thinking about, you know, what was Henry Adams like? You know, what what kind of consciousness did he have? And he was a man of, of the book, but many people weren't reading anything for years and years and years or they were, were illiterate. Many were, I was going to say so they were illiterate. Uh, we tend to romanticize or to um, imagine things were better. I mean, it certainly seems pretty horrible now because of that thing in office. Um, <laughs> on, on the other hand, uh, there are other things happening that are pretty interesting. And again, it's if you're 8 years old or 12 years old, you're, whatever experience of life you're having, that's what you're having. And... I don't know. I don't like to to. I I just feel that um, we don't know what kind of thinking or experience of life is going to come out of this. There are people who, uh, you know, in the '60s would just sit at home with their TV on all the time, or uh, I don't know. Before then, what other kinds of um, uh, ways of excluding themselves from the general flow of society. It seems to me people are intensely in touch uh, when cell phones came in and you saw people using them for the first time. They're saying, where are you? Um, uh, I'm almost there. Uh, is dinner ready? It's a, <laughs> it was, you felt that there was both a need for attachment in a way that was um, different and uh, checking in. Everybody's checking in all the time. Yeah. Now, are they checking in because they're lost or are they checking in because they're so attached? Is the attachment too great? I don't know. Yeah. I know that people are talking to their parents by Skype from college I didn't talk to my parents. Right, right. <laughs> you know, that wasn't part of the zeitgeist I grew up in. I was supposed to really be in another world from my parents. Now, that's different. Is that better, worse? Who I, knows? I just don't know. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I often think about like how... You used to make phone calls. You used to, I remember, I mean, I'm old enough to remember rotary dial phones, <laughs> you know, and like you used to actually like have to, you know, be at home to catch the phone and then you had an answering machine and then there was three-way calling, which in high school, you know, was fun. And, uh, and then you've sort of seen it drift away to like, when you don't call somebody now, you text them. There was email for a bit. And I wonder about this texting. Everything seems to be moving you sort of like a, a another degree away from and really? yet, and yet, instant contact. Also, the problem for me with texting and email is tone. Yeah, and you can get an email from someone or a text that's so brusque that you think, if you're me, 
They're angry. Right. Somebody's angry at me. And then I have to phone them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's like unpunctuated. So you're like, is this interrogative? Or they they saying, is this a declarative? You know, it's it's fascinating. You learn to read differently and not to worry too much about a a nuance. But uh, it's the instantaneity of things. Of uh, if you don't hear back from someone, used to be you wrote a letter, and it was a different kind of letter because you weren't expecting an instant response. Mm. So you were talking about yourself or something that happened, and it wasn't about needing a response. Maybe that part of this time of transition, tremendous transition that we're living in, I think, and perhaps trauma. Too, of mm. different of, of a national kind that I couldn't really def- define. Uh, all of these um, inventions, all of these ways of communicating, are to repair something that maybe can't be repaired. But there is so much of the instant of in the instant. And I still like phone calls because I like to hear people's voices. I like me too. And I like a letter. I think part of the reason why I do this show, uh, it, part of the origin story of the show was frustration with social media and the two dimensionality of it. And just like, wh- who's behind this? When did you start the show? 2011. So I'm still going, but I mean, I think it's like, I wanted to talk to people and have like a richer conversation and dialogue because, uh, you know, otherwise it was an, an unfolding on a comment board or like in a thread below a photo that somebody posted of their breakfast or, you know what I'm saying? It's just, Do you know who listens to you? Um, yeah, I hear from a lot of listeners. I, I don't know everybody, but I, I get a, I have a sense of who listens. It's a lot of people who are writers, you know. And you have a nice voice too. Do I? Yes. Well, so do you. Thank you. Yeah. I feel like, uh, I don't know. I just feel like it's... Uh, your voice is easy to listen to. I hope Whereas so. Whereas people screaming on television are not. <laughs> should, that's, on why cable that's why I'm not on TV. <laughs> um, but, you know, and there's so many different things. I feel like you're a person I could sit here and ask question after question mm. to. I didn't even get to visual art. Mm. Um, do you have time for like a, just a, a short conversation sure. about visual art? Because it factors into your work. Yes. It's factored into your education. Yes. And it's just a, it's a central concern of yours. Yes. Something you know a lot about. And I'm always interested when I talk to writers who have this kind of varied background aesthetically mm-hmm. and how the different disciplines or art forms or whatever you want to call them inform one another. Mm-hmm. Like, how has that worked for you and how has it evolved over the course of your career? Like this obsession with the visual uh, I don't know if it's an obsession, but a, 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 an engagement. I, <laughs> as Yogi Berra said, you know, you, I get a lot just from watching, <laughs> <laughs> looking, or whatever, whatever that phrase he said, sentence was. I I grew up uh, looking at TV and movies. My father was a textile designer. Okay, and so the the look of things and discussions or going to his, he had his own company, uh, going to his office and looking at material fabric um, and the sort of mystery of this great role of fabric and the texture of things. Uh, we, I, I loved that, the tactility. And uh, as a kid, I was taken to museums or went on my own and my mother was an amateur painter. Mm-hmm. Uh, these two older sisters were, I guess, introduced me to some 
some things also uh, in art or plays. Was there a lot of dialogue about visual art? I mean, it had had to have been in in the air. Uh, in my family? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. More about books. I remember writing my sister Iris, who was at Smith at the time, about reading a book and what book I was reading and that it was too long. And Which book was it? <laughs> God, I don't know. It it it, it could have been Nor- a Norman Mailer book or something because in my teens I was reading him and others of that group. Um, so movies, I loved movies and went to them a lot, and that obviously that visual. But about art, uh, I sort of came to that myself, I think. And when I was in college and miserable, very, very miserable, not that I didn't like learning, but I was a neurotic mess, uh, a friend, an older friend in school, was a music and art double major, and she said, take some courses in studio art. And I did, and I learned a lot by doing and by going to gallery shows and seeing my uh, teacher's work. And I just started thinking more and more about it. But actually making a painting, working with this other kind of space than the space of a page, was fascinating. And I loved it also. Uh, And you think spatially. And there's a lot of spatial thinking, I think, in... um, in men and apparitions, because it's set up differently, it's more spatial. I think it's not linear. Although there are, there is a kind of chronology as it goes along, but it doesn't read as a linear book. There's a logic there. I think um, it's sort and, of a relief to work in visual art, like even just like because I'm I'm no artist, but mm-hmm. just to just to sit and doodle. It works a different part of the brain. It does. It feels it, like, especially if you're deep into a, a piece of writing. It's kind of a relief to go draw a little bit. Or I've been doing some watercolors again every once in a while, and it it it, it is a, a different. You're thinking differently. Uh, the The question of space in this and what happens with color, uh, it's exciting. And if you're not a real visual artist, as I'm not, uh, it's not as daunting. You know, I can Pressure's play around. Off. Pressure, pressure is off. You know, and I did make uh, some films also. I, I, you know, I was one of these people who wanted to do everything, and of course, a lot of artists are doing everything now. And I feel sympathy with that. Like I'm, I, it's always like I feel like I can get easily distracted because I want to. I have my hands in too many cookie jars. But then, at a certain point, I I had to um, limit my myself. Uh, and still, you know, you you know that you could have had three different lives, perhaps. You got to pick one at some point, or it picks you. <laughs> Maybe the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, it is such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for coming over to talk with me. Congratulations on the publication of the new book, and I wish you well. Thank you very much, Brad. Okay, there you go. That's Lynn Tillman. Her new novel, the first in uh, 12 years, is called Men and Apparitions, available now from Soft Skull Press. You can find Lynn on Twitter. Her handle there is at Glossitis. She's also on Facebook. Men and Apparitions out there now. Go get your copy. Uh, I would like to thank... What's the name of this band? 
Gotta look at the folder. Cigarette royalty for uh, this transitional music. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. You can follow this show on Twitter at OtherPPL. You can email me at letters at OtherPPL.com. You can support the show at Patreon.com slash OtherPPLPod. Don't forget to get the Other People app. It's free. Download it. Get it on your phone or upload it. You know what I'm talking about. It's free. Get the app, the Other People app. It's a great way to listen. So I don't know, you know, like uh, you talk about self, relating to yourself, trying to figure out who you actually are. Steve, the uh, gentleman who wrote to me at the top of the show in the monologue when I was reading his letter. I don't know if I did an adequate job of responding. Or if I, you know, I don't mean to be simplistic or talking about things in a way that seems tired. I feel like I've talked a lot about uh, self and how everything's an amalgam. It's like, a, you know, it's, it's one of these things that is fundamental to me and that I have to constantly remind myself of. I find comfort in it somehow. Because not only is a combination a combination, but it's also a continuation. It's all part of some uh, flow, right? The river of life, whatever you want to call it. Fixed identities are uh, illusory. But it is a weird thing to tell somebody. Like, be yourself. Well, what the hell does that mean? I've always found that confusing. Just be yourself. Just be yourself. You got it. You can do this. Just be yourself. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. Just made everything complicated. Just be yourself. Everything's fine. Everything's fine.